Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 137, Preaching in the Dark Ages. This show is free and independent due to member support. And as thanks for helping keep the community going, I offer members-only content, such as extra episodes and rough transcripts. If you're interested in supporting the show and helping us out, you can do so over at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. And thank you very much to Frederick, James, and Jason for contributing already. Now, I thought I would start this episode with a letter from Gordon. Last episode, when I talked about the Battle of Necton's Mera, Gordon was surprised that I didn't get into a discussion regarding the location of that battle. And he provided a rather interesting perspective that I thought you might like to hear. Quote, If you've ever been to Dunachin near Forfar, there's a distinct lack of mountain passings or lakes. Admittedly, marshy terrain or a lake could have dried up in the intervening centuries, but the lack of mountains is a distinct problem for this location. Yes, there are some outlying glens a dozen miles away, but it seems a bit of a stretch for the battle to be named after Dunachin if it took place in Glencova, or Glenprossen, or Glenisla, the three main glens nearest to the site. And of those, only Glencova comes close to matching the description. The response to this objection is usually that the survivors have exaggerated the terrain as an excuse for their defeat. I suppose that's possible. However, there is a place known as Dunacton near Loch Inch, much further north, and which has the required lake along with several adjacent mountain passes. It's also much closer to the kingdom of Fortriu, which many academics now accept was based in the northeast of what is now Scotland, around Aberdeenshire, Moray, and Inverness. Alex Wolfe of Edinburgh University first proposed this theory a few years ago, and it's gained a lot of support. End quote. So that was Gordon's email. And see, I told you it was interesting. Now, short of finding something miraculous in the archaeological record, my guess is that this will be something that we'll never know for sure. But if you are in Scotland at any point, you might want to drop by Dunacton and have a look around and see what you think of it. Now, we've been talking quite a bit about the affairs of kings and kingdoms, and how the royal dynasties of Britain were influencing the scope of history on both sides of the wall. Not only that, but they were also influencing, and being influenced, by their neighbors across the Irish Sea and across the Channel. And we've also been talking about how the struggle between Christianity and paganism was coming to an end, while the struggle over the form of Christianity was only just beginning. And we've spoken a bit about the major characters involved in the conversions. And interestingly, every time we've had a major shift from paganism to Christianity— it was the result of royal action and clergy. Even after conversion, the kings would have clergy in their court and encourage or even outright demand the conversion of their subjects. They would raise the children of nobles in their courts, which would put the sons of prominent Anglo-Saxon families in close contact with Christian clergy, further enforcing the spread and the attachment of the religion. And once the sons were released, many of them would return to the lands held by their family or be given further lands by their lord and probably would in turn act as evangelists to their subjects. It was an efficient way to spread Christianity. And actually, the joint effort between the royalty and the clergy might account for one of the reasons why so many members of the royal households, including even kings who wanted to retire, were entering religious life. 
Perhaps it was partially just a response to that level of interaction and cooperation between the two groups. But whatever the case, the dynasties and the clergy were certainly working together on this. And here is an area where we have something to learn from the great man approach to history, which is why I've emphasized it in the main narrative of our show. Augustine, Ethelbert, Edwin, Pope Gregory, St. Columba, all these people had a dramatic impact upon the conversion of Britain. But they weren't the only people involved in this cultural shift, and the vast majority of the actors are unknown and unnamed. They're commoners, monks, nuns, priests, and itinerant holy men. From the great man approach, this conversion seems rather monolithic. Sure, we have a few branches of Christianity, and we have kings converting to Christianity and others returning to paganism. And when these shifts happen, we're generally told that their kingdoms came with them. And we've touched a bit upon how that might have looked on the ground floor, but we really haven't taken a serious look at what life was like for those unnamed individuals who were out there converting, and the unnamed people who were being converted. And as you know, I love to get down into the weeds and take a look at the life of the average people, since that's who most of our ancestors were. So today, let's talk a bit about them and their new religion. After all, Religion is one of the major pillars of this era, and you cannot understand what is happening without understanding its influence. And to start with, the average commoner in Britain was probably a bit bewildered by what was going on during the conversion period. Not just because they had their lords telling them that they were now followers of a different god, but also because they weren't entirely sure of who this god was. We touched upon it on occasion in the show, but this would have been a really confusing time to be alive. And largely, it was confusing due to the actions of the royals and the upper clergy. The thing is that conversions were a bit difficult, so compromises had to be made. For example, Pope Gregory said that pagan shrines and holy sites should not be destroyed, but rather consecrated. And that was a wise choice when you think about it, because often these pagan sites could be dated back to the Bronze Age, or even earlier. So to suddenly tell people that they and all their ancestors had been worshipping devils would have been a PR nightmare. It makes much more sense to just convert the site and let the people keep doing what they were doing. But now they could be venerating a Christian saint or angel or really anything else other than their pagan gods. That same attitude was followed with regard to pagan rites, with animal sacrifices being converted to Christian feasts. So all of that did do quite a lot to make conversion easier, but it created a great deal of confusion regarding what was Christian and what wasn't. And that could account for why we saw pagans like Raidwald simply including Christ among the pantheon of his gods, which pretty clearly indicated that he did not understand monotheism. And this also could explain why the three pagan sons of King Sabert ejected the Bishop of Essex out of their kingdom when he refused to share the Eucharist, because they just wanted to try the magic bread. So yeah, there was a lot of confusion during this period. And as you probably remember, this confusion wasn't helped by the fact that there were a few different brands of Christianity operating within Britain. You had the Welsh and Irish following and professing Celtic Christianity and converting much of the region that would become Scotland as well as the northern Anglo-Saxon kingdoms. And then you had the Roman Catholic Christians, who, to begin with, were most powerful in the south, but would become dominant in all the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms following the Synod of Whitby. So yeah, 
This would have been a very confusing time to be alive, especially when you take into account that the lord of the land might be the one mandating conversion, perhaps directly. For example, one of the sons raised in the royal court might go back to his lands and immediately begin preaching and converting the local farmers with absolute zeal. But his understanding of the religion might be limited, and that could lead to a great deal of misunderstandings. And so, it was largely on the backs of the clergy to clear up some of that confusion, with the monks carrying the majority of the weight. But not all monks were created equally. Granted, many had similar themes thanks to the popularity of the Irish monk Columbanus. But still, each monastic order had its own rules and behaviors that were characteristically theirs. Not only that, but each band of monks and each monastery had their own favorite saints, practices, and even religious calendars. And these beliefs and behaviors were not confined within their own walls. They evangelized. And so the communities that they served were picking up the traditions of whatever group of monks that was preaching to them. And actually, not all minsters, monasteries, and monks were interested in pastoral care. Some of them were focused like a laser upon the royal dynasties and didn't engage at all with the common people. So things weren't exactly progressing at an even pace across all levels of society, and the message was getting a bit muddied. Now, the organization of the conversion was a bit like a pyramid. You had the archbishop, who almost certainly had a thorough knowledge of the religion and was based in Canterbury. And if he was close with the royalty, he was likely ministering to the royal dynasty of Kent. And then he had the bishops, who were also quite likely to be knowledgeable and would have spent a great deal of time among the upper classes of the kingdom or kingdoms that they served, ministering to them. Beneath them were the priests and monks, the priests would have been selected and ordained by the bishop that they served, so they likely shared his outlook and they might have even had a decent level of knowledge of Christianity. But the thing is that the clergy were educated in a sort of apprenticeship thing, so their knowledge would have really depended heavily upon who taught them. If it was Alcuin, they probably would have shared his views and would have also been quite knowledgeable, so they would have been good to go. If it was Unferth, well, things might have been a little bit more you know, confused. So that's the priests. As for the monks, as I said, they weren't all created equally, and they also had differing views from one another, and they had the same issues with apprenticeship as the priests did. So things were a bit tough there, too, and those monks, in turn, would ordain clergy to care for the surrounding population. It's a long road from archbishop to the clergy who would ultimately speak to the common farmer, isn't it? And due to the way that instruction was carried out, there were all sorts of places where individual interpretation can be inserted, and different points of view could be emphasized or de-emphasized. So, while all the clergy might be working under the auspices of Canterbury and professing the same religion, what they actually professed in the countryside, well, that could be wildly different. And keep in mind that when Bede was writing later on, he despaired over the uneducated priests and clergy who didn't even know the Lord's Prayer or the Apostles' Creed, which is a bit like a rocket scientist not knowing the sum of 2 plus 2. To a certain extent, what we hear about some of these early clergy sort of reminds me of Arnold from the musical The Book of Mormon. Well-meaning, 
but utterly ignorant on the tenets of the religion and just kind of making things up on the fly. The fact of the matter is that many of the clergy who ministered to the local farmers were probably quite ignorant of the finer details of Christianity, and some might have even lacked a working knowledge of the basic principles, like the Ten Commandments. But the people being ministered to didn't know that, and the clergy from those monasteries would certainly have been quite persuasive. Not only were they the followers of the same God that the king followed, but they also stayed in lavish surroundings, at least lavish for the time. The British monks, taking their lead from the Frankish and Italian monasteries, did their best to ensure that their buildings were constructed with stone. And these weren't cold, boring, prison-like buildings. They had glass-covered windows, and they made every effort to make their dormitories comfortable. And as for the churches, they often housed treasure and sacred relics. Not only that, but some of these men were learned in medicine, ancient rites, and even writing. And many of the monks had been overseas, whereas your average serf might not have even left his own village. And keep in mind that the knowledge that they had access to was staggering. We're talking about a time when, even 200 years after Augustine, you still had Anglo-Saxon women putting their daughters in ovens and on hot rooftops in an effort to cure their fevers. Yeah, feed a cold, bake a fever. And as you might imagine, with local cures such as that, the presence of monks with medical knowledge, even if that knowledge involved horse dung, would have been quite a relief. So the commoners who came in contact with the monks must have been a bit awestruck. And that likely helped the conversion efforts. But what exactly they were learning from the clergy would have varied greatly from community to community and from class to class. Preaching to the royalty would have been very different from preaching to a farmer. And none of that would have been helped by the triage attitude of the early missionaries, who just let a great deal of pagan behavior slide. And don't forget that holy men were people too. We have accounts of some members of the clergy being horrified when they discovered that their brethren feasted and allowed horse races to be undertaken to mark the end of a holy celebration. And sometimes they even took place in it themselves. Horses, as you might remember, were tied to the old pagan Nordic gods. Now, it's possible that people, when taking the cloth, just didn't want to give up all of their traditions and still clung to some of the old ways. But it's also possible that the feasts and horse races were just part of what was initially triaged, and that the galloping clergy simply didn't realize that they were doing anything wrong. After all, it's just a horse race and a dinner. And it might have been that sort of tendency that gave rise to the veneration of oblates, child monks. The advantage of a child monk is that you don't have to get rid of any bad habits. The child is a blank slate, at least as far as habits and beliefs are concerned. But most monks didn't begin as oblates, and it seems like there is a great deal of either confusion or simple reluctance to give up tradition among the Anglo-Saxon population. And things like this weren't just happening in the early days. Even in the period we're talking about now, it was still happening. For example, Theodore of Tarsus, the Archbishop of Canterbury who we've been talking about, dictated penalties for any Christian who ate food from a pagan sacrifice. 
Though the difference between a pagan sacrifice and a Christian feast at this point in time was probably one largely of semantics and likely came down to whether or not a bishop had consecrated the event yet. What was a sacrifice one year might be a holy Christian feast the next. And imagine trying to keep up with that when you're living in a remote farming village. But the crazy thing about these penalties that Theodore set out is that he also wanted the priests to take into account the Christians' age, how they were raised, and what the circumstances of the sacrifice were before handing out the punishment. He actually went on to distinguish people who just dabbled in paganism versus those who were devout pagans. So he seems like he was a bit of a light touch. However, he was not understanding with everything. For example, he was quite grumpy and stern with anyone who burned grain in the presence of corpses for, quote, the health of the living and the house, end quote. Though, to be fair to Theodore, burning grain next to a corpse reeks of paganism, so maybe he just couldn't find a way to let that one go. So, even though we're nearly 200 years after Augustine, we're still seeing the church making allowances for age, for confused recent converts, for people who just have little superstitions, and for those people who thought they were Christian, but were holding on to outdated traditions or misunderstandings of the religion. It looks like the church was just all too aware of how crazy this point in time was, and were doing their best to make allowances for it. Though, it looks like Theodore refused to let things slide when lives were on the line. Remember the women who were putting their daughters into ovens to cure their fevers? Well, they got a stiff multi-year penance. You just cannot let that sort of thing slide. It had to stop. But the effort to crush paganism was on, with even kings trying to enforce the boundaries of the religion and eliminate paganism. But like Theodore's rules, they had their own peculiarities. For example, King Wichred of Kent outlawed offering sacrifices to devils. Well, that isn't entirely true. He outlawed free farmers and slaves from offering sacrifices. As for landed gentry and hire, well, it doesn't look like there are any issues there. Now, on the one hand, you can take that to mean that paganism was only a problem among the rural population. Perhaps because they were so isolated from the men of the cloth, they were backsliding into the old ways. While the more wealthy members of society weren't interested in returning to the old gods, perhaps because they were seen as low class. And that is a perspective that some scholars ascribe to. But you can look at this another way as well. King Wichred might simply have been unwilling to punish any higher-born pagans, and maybe latent paganism was a problem throughout all levels of Kentish society. After all, coups were not uncommon at this point in time, and I doubt that many kings were eager to anger their thanes as a result. So maybe he was just letting it slide. And considering that there were still upper-class families who would cram the graves of their loved ones with goods that, frankly, were incredibly pagan, and sometimes would be accompanied with Christian grave goods as well, it makes me suspect that paganism, as well as a general confusion regarding the bounds of the religion, was not just a lower-class thing. And frankly, even some of the Christian objects in the graves appear to have had some sort of magical significance such as the work boxes that have been found in higher-status women's graves. And amulets, which is what these work boxes seem to be, turned out to be rather difficult to eliminate from Anglo-Saxon society, despite the all-out war that the clergy tried to wage against them. So yeah, 
This seems to have been an issue that hit all levels of society. But the confusion of the lower classes is something that we see hints of, even in Bede's writings. It looks like many rural populations, once baptized, were just largely left to their own devices and had to work out on their own exactly what their new god wanted. There simply were not enough monks and priests to go around, and communities can go as much as a year without seeing any men of the cloth. And even among kings, there were likely to be misunderstandings. After all, most kings weren't literate at this point, so they were entirely reliant on the perspectives of their clerical council. So what I'm getting at is this would have been a very strange time to be a Christian in Britain. And what it meant to be Christian could have varied wildly from village to village. And due to the issue of manpower, what you often had happening was recent converts working to convert others. And those converts looked like they were still holding on to a lot of pagan notions, often still venerating pagan sites, though they might have been consecrated recently, and many of their notions of what was Christian came from their own efforts to puzzle out the few lessons they learned from holy men at their own baptism. And needless to say, we find all sorts of strange things when reading the notes of the clergy from this period. The combination of laissez-faire attitudes towards some old pagan practices, the lack of education, and the general issues with access had created quite a mess for the church. So it doesn't surprise me that we see ordinary people who might have only rarely had the opportunity to attend a religious service doing their best to incorporate Christianity into their daily lives. And in doing so, they broke from traditional practices and created something that looked a bit like Christianized paganism, though they certainly would have described themselves as Christians. And the kicker is that this sense of mysticism might have come from members of the clergy themselves. For example, St. Columba taught a farmer to make the sign of the cross before milking a cow in order to keep devils from hiding at the bottom of the milk pail. Now granted, exorcism and ousting devils isn't a complete break from Christian tradition, but this still has a hint of old magic to it, doesn't it? Or if you want a bit more magic, what about Heaven's Field? That's where King Penda killed King Oswald and then chopped up his body and put it on whale stings. You know, dead body poles. Well, it didn't take long following that event for people to begin making pilgrimages to the site. And the farmers who lived nearby would often take their livestock there when it was getting sick. And miraculously, the livestock would recover. And in Kemsing, a village in Kent, it was tradition to go to a shrine dedicated to an unknown saint and offer a seed of grain in order to protect the harvest from mildew. I don't know about you, but that looks like a pretty old rite to me, especially since it is an unknown saint. Could it actually be an old pagan god? Who knows, but this practice does seem quite old to me. And what's interesting is they kept doing it all the way until the Protestant Reformation. These traditions had incredible staying power. Many communities also had sacred wells, sacred springs, or other sacred bodies of water. And as you might remember from earlier on in the show, water was of key significance to the Druids. So how old were these sites? And where exactly did the religious rites originate from? And I think what we're seeing with these examples is that the farming communities of Anglo-Saxon Britain were finding a way to incorporate their new religion into their daily lives. 
be it keeping the devil out of the milk, using the side of a dismemberment as a cheap alternative to going to the vet, or praying to an unknown saint to keep your harvest from going off. All of these things would have been incredibly important to the Anglo-Saxon farmers. And the practices they carried out had an interesting blend of Christian imagery and pagan mysticism. For the common people, they seem to have been trying to make their new religion practical and applicable in their daily lives. And from the religious writing of the time, it seems that the rural clergy understood and took part in that. But the urban clergy, who might have been more focused upon political and literary matters, found those practices to be quite troubling. So, as with everything else from this era, we're seeing a staggering lack of uniformity, unity, and understanding even within a single religion. All right, hopefully my voice didn't bug you too much. I'm fighting off a cold. But if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast.gmail.com. We're also on Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, all of it. And you can find links to all those sites at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. Okay, thanks for listening. <laughs>